What does it mean to be completely healthy? Welcome to the podcast where you'll find encouraging stories to help us focus on all layers of our health, the mental, the physical, the emotional, the spiritual. I'm Monica Patton, and these are the parts of us. Today, I sit down with Pastor Carol Galat to discuss the importance of our spiritual health, self-compassion, and community, along with how she strives to teach with love. Carol also tells us what major life changes led her to be a Methodist minister in the rural South. Pastor Carol, thank you for being here. I'm so glad you could join me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited about talking about um, our health, our spiritual health, and some some things that have um, become important to me over the last decade or so. Thanks for having me. Good. Yeah. So it's let's just go into talking about why why you care about it. What what brought you into what you do as a pastor? What led you into the ministry? Um, I, um, I have a personal experience, um, that kind of unfolded over a number of years, um, of a growing unhealthiness in my life. Um, I was in a, a relationship that was, um, kind of mutually toxic, uh, and in a church that was unhealthy, I had, a very stressful job. I worked as a public school teacher in a larger city um, where there was just a lot of toxicity and a lot of stress and some violence. And um, and all of those things, I think, were factors in in my becoming sick um, in, in several areas of my life, spiritually sick, relationally sick. Um, I had a fibromyalgia diagnosis and... Uh, I was I was struggling, and um, as those different crises, kind of situations in my life started unfolding, um, and I was able to relinquish one at a time, even relinquishing my job, which I thought was a no, you know, not not possible <laughs> as a single person. Um, all of those things uh, brought me into a place of of better health and kind of resetting, resetting my life. Maybe it was kind of a midlife crisis. <laughs> All of this happened around my 39th to 42nd birthday, I would say. So um, so those things kind of unfolded, and I found um, a healthier way of being. Um, I looked around for um, different uh, ways of, of coping with stress. I needed to find better ways to deal with my stress and to identify my areas of pain and, and woundedness in my own self. So really it took an increase of, of self-awareness that came from um, a, a, a health crisis that almost cost me my vision um, to, to give me the courage to, to lay down some of the busyness and, and seek a better life. So, well, that is what I hope that we all can learn from our struggles is a better way. And where, you know, I, I think that's what struggle and stress 
can either, we can stay on that path or look at maybe I need to reevaluate some things. And it sounds like really there was a lot of good that actually came from that hardship. Right. I think that's the thing about crisis. Um, if we if we can experience a crisis and then come out better because of it, then um, then that can be redeemed. Uh, I was I was in a situation where um, I, I experienced violence in the classroom. Um, I was hit by a student um, and it happened two times and the student was returned to my classroom and um it really caused me um, a great deal of emotional uh, pain and difficulty because I realized um, nobody had my back. Um, my administrator, uh, you know, my colleagues, everybody was kind of in survival mode in our school. Um, that led to um, me realizing I, I wanted to escape from from that uh, career escape from my life um, and led to the the idea that I need to create a life that I don't need to escape from. So several crisis situations, the crisis in my personal relationship, crisis in the conflict at church, um, crisis with uh, acts of violence in the school, um, nothing was life-giving at the time. And so I was finding other things to do and filling my time um, with other activities to the point where I was staying up till about four in the morning um, and only getting a couple hours of sleep, trying to make up for the difficult things I was experiencing. So I I needed to find a way out of um, what was sucking the life out of me and find that life-giving uh, flow. So wow, I, uh, I think that's important. I think that's important for all of us to hear. And I love that line that you said, I don't know, four or five sentences back about creating a life. Say that say that again. I need to yeah. I need to ponder on that. Okay. I, I realized I needed to create a life that I didn't need to escape from. Wow. So do you think that that's what a lot of us do? Stay where or what of us? What maybe? What of all of us need to do instead of putting up with white knuckling, whatever situation, whatever our life is looking like at the time, and not realizing our power that we can we can get out of some of those situations and move past it. I think so many of us are in. Um, places of responsibility, whether it's with work or family um, or something that we have felt responsible for, uh, maybe where we've accepted somebody else's um, expectations that were placed on us. Um, so many times I think we are pushing through um, to meet the expectations or do what's necessary um, as we have perceived it. Um, I had a I had a huge chart that I made. I met with a, a life coach who is a spiritual director, a life coach, and um, she was there for me to kind of help me uh, become aware of what the things were in my life that were were drawing the energy 
off of off of me. And when I say energy, I'm not talking necessarily just like about spiritual energy, but I'm talking about the efforts and the attention that I was given to things in my life. I made a chart. Uh, I like charts. I'm a little nerdy that way. Um, but this is kind of a cognitive map. And so I drew an image in the middle that represented me, and it was um, kind of like uh, the stretchy uh, part, like of a tr- trampoline that's stretched on a frame. So I showed that um, that I was being stretched in different directions. And from each of the points that was pulling me, I was able to like write um, what I was feeling responsible for or who who I was responsible to or all the things that were on my plate that were the demands of my life. So I made this, it was a poster, and I used markers to, to fill it in and color-coded it and everything. But on that, I was able to see just the insanity of how much uh, I was expecting of myself. And I say expecting of myself, um, even though at the time I thought others were requiring these things of me. People expect me to do this. I'm responsible for that. Um, all of those um, messages that we tell ourselves. And we all do. We all have messages we tell ourselves, that internal dialogue that may be, I feel like it's typically negative. Mm-hmm. So there, there definitely has to be a point in your in your life, you hope so for all of us, that you reevaluate those messages. And I like that cognitive map idea because that sounds like a great tool for introspection. And I'm so glad to hear a person in the spiritual world talking about the importance of introspection. You know, I think sometimes we focus on just, you know, relationally and, you know, our relationship with God and, a, and, and that importance. But the more I believe, the more we understand ourselves, the better our relationship to God and others is. Do you agree with that? I agree with that. And I think um, as a spiritual leader, I see my role is about helping people get to healthier relationships. And when I say that, I mean, we have to have a healthy relationship with God uh, in order to have a healthy relationship with ourselves. Um, Because if we know... uh, we were created in the image of God um, that casts a whole new uh, light on um, what our self-concept is. Why would, why would God create me in God's image and then call me unworthy? Um, we have an innate worthiness because of um, reflecting the image of God. So hearing you talk about your backstory and kind of how you, I guess, maybe was led, even though it was maybe from struggle, but led into the ministry. It's It seems as if your journey, if you will, of self-discovery and really, truly working on yourself and your thought processes, did that happen before you became a minister or was that was that coinciding with that time? I would say the the self-awareness and, and doing that work has probably been a lifelong 
um, journey for me. Um, I think, you know, each of us has different um, learning styles, preferences, spiritual gifts. We're all um, gifted in different ways, and and maybe both the gift and the curse of of um, being a highly sensitive person would be self awareness. So, in my pastoral care training, I was. Um, you know, I was built up and encouraged because, or spoken well of because I had this self-awareness. But I would say as a young person, uh, from 12 to 22, maybe 12 to 30, um, that self-awareness caused me a lot of pain. Um, and I think part of what, um, part of what we may do in, in several different areas of Christian ministry is encourage people to be self-aware without giving people the tools of what to do with their self-awareness. Yes. We preach about people's sin. We get people aware of their uh, their failures. Which they already know. We usually. all know it really well. <laughs> we yeah. know those well. Yep. Yeah. I was counseling somebody this week, and as I was setting up the room to prepare for this counseling, um, I looked around and I uh, looked for, okay, let me make sure I have different chairs, different chairs and different placements so they can be empowered to choose, you know, what position they're in. But also there was a huge mirror on the wall. So I took the mirror down because I didn't want them to be um, running through those uh, ways that we harm ourselves with our own thoughts like when we feel shame or we feel guilt, you know, and looking in the mirror, I think looking at ourselves sometimes brings about that uh, sense of shame. Mm -hmm. That reminder. Yeah. Well, how wonderful that you are a highly sensitive person. And I'm not sure that we've ever discussed that. And I don't know that that is a very common term, but could you talk a little bit more about that and how you think that that is actually helpful to you in your ministry? But as you said, and I do believe this too, and I've heard a lot of really, really smart intellectual people talk about this. Our our gifts can sometimes be, as you said, our curse. Or, you know, there's always, there's a flip side. So how do you think it helps you in dealing with people relationally, emotionally, and spiritually in your in your congregation and with the people that you have contact with. Um I want to I want to go back and say um I'm grateful that I didn't enter ministry until around midlife. Um I was a teacher. Um but I think even as a young person knowing I wanted to go into ministry, knowing that I was sensing the call even at 12 years old, um at that point, I lacked um, an understanding of, of what my self-awareness meant. Um, I would say as a highly sensitive person, um, I'm very empathetic. And so I, um, I experience uh, the pain that other people are experiencing. Um, I can experience the joy that other people are experiencing. Uh, and so it can be very overwhelming. Um, uh, one of the most important parts of our time of worship together 
and I, I think this is typical of small churches, is that we share our joys and concerns. And so that takes a lot of uh, a lot of our time. It feels like it takes a lot of our time, and it might just be that that's elevated in my um, mind and heart because it takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of attention, and um, it draws our emotion up when we talk about our friends are suffering or somebody in the congregation is waiting on a, a medical report or um, we are anticipating a joy all of that, it just stirs up and, and draws out um, the emotion. Um, and that, uh, that can be exhausting. Absolutely, emotionally. Emotionally exhausting. And I, I think that that is wonderful. It got to be a wonderful part of you as a minister for your congregates. But maybe everyone may not realize the energy that that does take from you. And so that probably makes you more, um, I guess, more drawn to, you know, taking care of yourself and what, I guess, keeping that balanced where you're not just giving all and just and, and no no refilling your cup. Right, right. And so um, no, I think nobody but a pastor knows the, the value of a Sunday afternoon nap. <laughs> um, we all like a Saturday, Sunday afternoon nap, but I bet you really yeah. do. Yeah, we need it. We uh, we need it desperately. So when uh, when the higher ups decide we need to have a Sunday afternoon meeting, that's no good. <laughs> uh, so if any district superintendents or bishops are listening, I want to say don't <laughs> schedule meetings on we Sunday need the nap. afternoon. You Stop need the nap. it <laughs> in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Um, so. Self-care has trended Mm -hmm. uh, over the last few years, I would say. Um, But one uh, phrase that you don't hear a lot of is Mm self-compassion. Self-compassion is um, if you are a highly sensitive person, an empath, or a pastor who is uh, feeling deeply um, as you're caring for your people, or a person who's a layperson, a a regular person who is just caring for other people. Um, you've also got to have compassion toward yourself. And I think, you know, we look at the people in our lives who we are responsible for. We look at the the elderly, um, my mom. You know, I'm going to make sure that uh, my mom has her medication, my mom has the nutrition she needs. Um, I need to deal with some mobility and accessibility issues for my mom, you know, um, and make sure she has the the ability to go visit with her friends and make connections. Uh, we look at the children who need us to make sure that they are safe and fed and clothed and educated. We look at our friends and we call in and check on them. Um, but are we are we making sure that we are caring for our own needs as we would our aging parent or our vulnerable child or our friend who we hold dear? Do you think that is harder? Do you think men and women both need that message, or do you think women fall prey more to nurturing everyone else but themselves? I think it is the nature of womanhood. Um, to to give, give, give. 
and even um, even the fact that women carry carry a child and give birth and and feed the child from her own body um, is it's a picture of of how we give continually through our lives. Um, I went on a Holy Land journey right before the pandemic in 2020. Um, actually, your in-laws were on that trip, and that was a great blessing. Um, so we were in the upper room, uh, one of the upper rooms in Jerusalem, where uh, it's it's a, a site that people go to rem- to remember that Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room. And in that room, there is a column with a, a, a top, uh, maybe a capital on that column, that looks like a pelican, a pelican whose um, whose beak is piercing her chest, and her babies are under her wings, and it's said that that pelican, if the pelican can't find food for her babies, she'll peck into her own heart and take her own flesh and feed her babies. Now, I don't know if this is true biologically or if this is just a legend, but what it gives us is a picture of, of Christ um, giving of his life uh, for the well-being of others. And isn't that what we do when we're caring for people of all generations? If we're in the middle, our children and our parents um, or the people we're responsible for as, as caregivers of any kind. Absolutely. So... Wow, what a beautiful picture. It's bizarre and beautiful. Bizarre and beautiful, yes. Let me go back to, you mentioned self-compassion. You know, we once again, we hear that term, kind of like self-care. What? How would you explain that? What What is a practice, if you're practicing self-compassion, what does that mean to you? What What, what would that look like? Give us some examples. Um, I'm in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to go to a meeting uh, for several days, and that meeting's going to be stressful, and there'll be a lot of tension in the meeting. And uh, it's a large gathering. Um, and so I have talked with a friend who I would call a covenant friend, a dear friend who we agree to look out for each other's well being and hold each other accountable. And so I've talked to her about. Um, let me drive. I'll drive you. And um, when we need to leave, um, when we've done what we were responsible for doing and we need to make our exit, um, let's let's make our exit. Um, I've talked to some young people who've been in um, difficult social situations lately, and um, I've asked them to be accountable to each other and say, um, Go be polite, go be social, um, but then hold each other accountable for when you need to leave. Um, we, I think we linger in unhealthy situations. It, who knows? It may be over a meal with family on a holiday. <laughs> we linger, mm-hmm. and um, we get drawn into drama that's unnecessary. So just having a plan in place with someone that's got your back, that you get them, they get you, mm-hmm. and you say, "Hey, we're when it's time to go, you're my partner. Mm-hmm. We're out. You're my exit plan." Right. And I found sometimes even 
um, in terms of family gatherings in the past, I realized, oh, if I take a friend home with me, um, everybody behaves better. Um, if I take a friend with me, then, oh, we have to leave because my friend has to get somewhere. And um, it really takes a lot of pressure off. And, you know, I, I sometimes will uh, maybe accuse myself of not being strong. And so that's why I have to have a chaperone. <laughs> I say have a chaperone, you know, about this. But, um, you know, we're made for relationship. Yes, I agree. And I think it goes back to that self-compassion of you You just said, I'm not strong enough. But that's, once again, we have to be compassionate to ourselves that, hey, maybe I just, I need some help with this. And it's okay to need support. And it's support. okay. It's okay. Right. Yeah, Everybody needs to know it's okay to be in need of support. 100%. Um, and so we have our families of origin. We have our churches of origin, um, our communities of origin. Um, but we also have the gift, I think it's a gift of being human, um, that we get to, to grow into choosing our, our families as we age. I like the term family. Family. I use that. I like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the family you choose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to hear you talk about what it, your experience has been like as a female pastor. In particular, in particular, in the South, as we are, what has your experience been? I'd say my experience has been a mixed bag. Um, I want to go back to childhood, and, and I remember um, being 11 and my parents signing me up for a computer programming class, and this was the 80s, early 80s, and I went to that class for six weeks um, before I realized that I was the only girl in the class. I was just so into what we were doing that my gender didn't, it didn't matter to me. Um, we sometimes divide men's work and women's work, you know, and I think we've made, sometimes we've made like math and science things the work of men, um, and then the human relations things, the work of women, except ministry. <laughs> Ironically, how is that? Um, when I came to DeKalb County, when I found out I was being sent to DeKalb County, um, I was really scared. I'm from the city, and I've grown up with this, you know, I can do anything. I have the liberty to do anything. My gifts can be used in whatever way. So I had that freedom of no limits, but then I had this awareness that coming coming to rural Alabama was different from where I've been, and that stirred up fear in me. And um, I had, I'll say, 80% of how I have been received has been positive and open and delightful and maybe even surprising to me. Um, 20% or, or less has been um, difficult or painful or negative. So there's that 80-20 rule in, in play. Uh, well, I would I consider that positive mm -hmm. if it's been more positive than negative. Right. And even the things that were hard, like um, initially uh, one of the places I was serving didn't want a female pastor. 
And, you know, now I can look back and see how knowing that um, I experienced um, some pain, uh, but I also let that lead to my being defensive. And if I could, if I could go back, I wonder if I could resist being defensive, would I have been able to be effective with those people? Now, I have had an effective and positive relationship with several of the people from that group. Um, but the group dynamic was such that, um, that it wasn't possible for me to continue with them. So, so that was hard. Um, but on the flip side, I've been asked to, to come to a place where um, a church particularly wanted a woman pastor because they had had a woman pastor in the past. And so um, it was a relief to know that my gender wasn't an issue. So I was able to go in and have a time uh, of ministry at that particular place. Um, I would say that it was as beneficial for me as it was for them. It was a time of healing for me. To really know you were wanted. Yes. Because, I mean, whoever you are, if you go into a place and you're you feel or you know that you weren't wanted. Um, it starts off from a bad yeah, bad place. I'd seen that happen in my mom's life. My mom was a music teacher, and um, the system that she taught in moved her to a school where she was displacing a beloved teacher. And so the people in that school um, had these microaggressions toward her constantly, because she was the reason that their former teacher wasn't there. And I think we see that, you know, I'm a United Methodist, and uh, we're part of a, a system where pastors are moved from one church to another. And um, so there this, there's this constant uh, building a new relationship and then letting go of that relationship. There's this turnover um, that can be painful. And if we aren't self-aware of our grief, and our loss, um, then resentment can build because we're we're putting our emotional energy, uh, kind of framing it wrong onto someone else. Right, when it's really we're blaming, like oh, yeah. that bad district superintendent did this to us. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so acknowledging when it's it's time to let go. That's yeah. That's hard. Yeah, that's hard. Being aware of of how your different responses. Mm -hmm. May all be pieces of grief, mm -hmm. and grief can look so many. There, there's so many things that can come. And out we've of grief. had so much grief in the last couple of years. Oh my goodness! Mm -hmm. Going back to speaking about you being a female pastor, and there aren't many that I'm aware of in DeKalb County, and there may be more that that I don't know about. I love that. I have a daughter, and I love I love that young girls specifically can see a woman in a leadership role and have that to to look at. And I think actually seeing it and experiencing it is not the same as knowing you can do it, but actually seeing someone do it. So I'm I'm thankful for that. What do you think that, or do you think there are specific gifts that female pastors? And this is not to say male pastors are not great, okay? But do you think there's specific female uh, 
are roles that a female pastor may bring to the table that might be a little bit different. What do you think? I would say so. And again, I think it goes back to that mothering and nurturing. I'm not a mother, um, but I feel like as a pastor, I've been given the opportunity to uh, parent, um, but also I'd say to daughter, um, if I can use that as a verb. (laughs) Um, One of the greatest blessings of, of my current appointment um, has been uh, being able to go and sit with some of the elderly people and be with them in in the times of uh, that led up to their deaths, and um, and so at times I have felt like you know I'm going to while I am going as a representative of God and I'm going to take the sacraments to people and go to pray with them. Um, sometimes I felt like I was also. Um, entering into that daughter role. I would say especially when um, there have been memory care, uh, you know, memory care has been a part mm-hmm. of, of the work. Um, when, a, when a parishioner was uh, facing the end of life with dementia, um, I think that line was blurred uh, for her, like, who was I? Um, you know, so... Um, for me, I will have to go from a situation like that where I'm feeling deeply and I'm being um, received into a, really a place of intimacy with a family. When I'm invited into, whether it's a, a health situation or a situation that's a, a grief or a end-of-life situation, um, there is so much tenderness and intimacy and sacredness in the moment um that at that time I may be feeling like I'm part of the family and then I go back home uh or back into my own space and remember okay this is not my crisis this is not my loss uh this is not my pain um but I've been able to carry it um and so, hold space for it right hold space I like that phrase mm-hmm. that's a very good I've been able to hold space for people in ways that are um, very close to the heart, heart-rending even. I uh, think that's really a key uh, tool, if you will, to learn as an empathetic person mm-hmm. is I can, I can relate to that. It's just I'm going to hold space with you. I can hear you and I can feel with you, but realize, you know, this is not mine to carry. Mm-hmm. But while I'm with you, I'm carrying it with you. Mm-hmm. And I will say that's not only a, a feminine or female experience. I know there are guys, uh, men of God, who you know who really uh, walk that out. They have the gifts for that. Um, so part of um, part of what I've experienced in um, in the last few months is preparing, uh, help, hoping to help prepare some young people for marriage. And um, I'm a single person who's never been married. And so for a moment, I have battled imposter syndrome. Like, who am I to help these kids get get ready for marriage when I haven't experienced that? Um, but that, again, is, um, is it's important for, for me to become sensitive and for me to become aware of um, what 
things that they're bringing into the relationship and how can I guide them and for me to seek assistance from other people to ask for help when I think that I don't know uh, what to do. Which I think that's <laughs> smart for all of us to do. Right. None of us know it all. None of, we we need to draw from other wise, discerning voices. But I love that you do that because marriage is a very, it can be a wonderful relationship, but it's definitely got, it's probably one of the most challenging relationships that you can have. So, man, what a great, what right. what a what a great thing to put your skills to. And, and I talking about the mother, I, I feel like you don't have to be married. You don't have to be a biological mother. I, I sort of look at the sort of equate these these things together to know how to do it well, because just because you have birthed a child or been married doesn't mean you've done <laughs> as well. Right. Right. So I think you can speak into marriage and I think we we need the church we need we we need more pastors we need more people like you speaking into people's relationships because it is a hard it's a hard relationship mm-hmm. to navigate so that's I have that's a good. friend um Diana DeWitt um who lives in the Nashville area and she wrote a book called The Authority of Love and um that's a book that I have drawn from but I also need to go back to it The Authority of Love um, when I think about um, my role as a pastor and part of part of what I have felt as the imposter syndrome, um, you know, I I try to use a quiet voice if I can when I'm preaching, uh, and I'm more of a teacher or an exhorter than I am a preacher. Um, I would say my strength is in pastoral care, um, and I um I think my self-perception was that I lacked authority. And I have criticized myself in the past for, you know, I am kind of passive in my leadership. I'm not very assertive. Um most of the time I'm going with the flow and um I'm observing what's going on and then maybe seeing where I can jump in and help God. Um, I told somebody, if Jesus is the good shepherd, then I'm just a sheepdog. <laughs> you know, my role is to go around the borders, you know, and to and to try to keep the, the flock moving in the right direction. So I like that sheepdog image. Um, but in terms of authority, um, we see some pastors exerting authority, um, uh, either through uh, very direct and directive declarations from the pulpit um, with um, establishing uh, strong and firm boundaries of you must do this, you must not do that. Uh, and so I think we have let that define authority. Um, maybe authoritativeness has defined authority. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. dif- there's a difference. Right. What's the difference? Well, and see what uh, authoritative Mm -hmm. or authoritarian, those words are two that we can uh, we can look at as somebody who's authoritarian is dictating or um, demanding or um, they are the person with the right to draw the line in the sand. And so I think that that 
fails us in a spiritual community uh, because the truth is that God's given all of us the Holy Spirit. And so each of us is uh, responsible for um, seeking God, reading the Word, um, finding uh, the direction that God has for us through the Scripture, um, and being a part of community. And um, you know, one of the practices that we do um, as we read the Scripture, we uh, after the reading of the Scripture, when we're in formal worship services, we might say, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, one thing that I have prayed is that God would work in us and through us, through the Word and by the Spirit. And lately, I have added to that, and I'm praying uh, in our worship service that God would move us and form us by the Word, by the Spirit, and by the power of community. Amen, I like that. So I feel like God is opening my eyes to see I can't be a Christian in isolation, and I can't encourage people to uh, to think that they can just go find all the answers for themselves and and do that apart from accountability and apart from compassion. Um, we've got to be sharing. And that goes back to that authority of love where we're contrasting authoritarian with the authority of love. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about, and I feel like this sort of leads into this question. What, is that is that one of the biggest things you you want to see in our church today or what do you think our world needs now most from the church I think the church needs to be a safe place for people to be real um people are hurting uh People are asking questions. People need to be able to ask. I've heard of uh, mostly people in my generation who um, maybe jokingly said they got kicked out of Sunday school as kids for asking too many questions. (laughs) But really, the church needs to be a safe place uh, for people to ask questions and to speak their doubts and to speak their truth. Um, I think everybody has a truth. You know, there is there is truth with a capital T, but there is also what you hold and what you believe, maybe what you believe about yourself. And that needs to be able to be worked out in community. And if we are authoritarian and say, this is the line, don't you cross it, uh, these are the sheep and these are the goats, if we are making that determination. All the rules. All the rules, yes. Um then we might be that obstacle that's keeping somebody from relationship with God, relationship with the church, relationship um, that would bring the healing um, and wholeness that they need. And and don't we so frequently um, look at somebody and size them up and we determine what it is that's wrong with them and what it is that they need? So we need to do that as well. Actually, first and foremost, to ourselves. Right. And if we are judging our own hearts, Mm -hmm. you know, and I don't mean judging in terms of that I'm unworthy, but if we are evaluating or becoming self-aware, 
and know our own weaknesses, then instead of us um, shouting out the weaknesses of others, we'll be in solidarity. Uh, we'll be brokenhearted with the brokenhearted. So that's, I think God's been working on me a lot about that. And I think the more self-aware that we are of our own strengths and strengths and weaknesses, because we have both, we all do, that it gives us more empathy and compassion for others, mm-hmm. right? If, if it's not always others-focused in that sense where it's like, I got to look at myself, but also like, I need compassion, I need grace. I got to be able to give those to others. Yes. I, I have been remembering an experience of walking on a labyrinth, a prayer labyrinth. Um, and we were told we could go and experience it however we wanted to. We could walk in with a prayer and leave something there and walk out with a different prayer. Um, but I was most annoyed that I had to walk that labyrinth with other people. I wanted it all to myself. I wanted that moment with God, uh, my mystical moment with God, you know, all by myself. Uh, but I stepped into this um, really a circle of prayer, uh, prayer walking. And as we walked in that circle, um, you know, I kept being aware of the other people around me. And at first I thought that was that they were interfering with my experience. But then I think what the Spirit showed me is that they are my experience. Each time a different woman who's in a different situation and a different stage of life uh, passed by me, I was reminded of parts of myself. And it goes back to why we need a community of believers. We need to be a part of a community. Right. So when I'm triggered by something and judge somebody or jump to a conclusion, um, it's good for me to have somebody outside of myself to say, um, maybe look at that differently and look at what it's bringing up in you and why. Um, And when I can begin to do that for myself, then I can also be strengthened in my ability to do that gently uh, for another person. So I'm so glad to hear your heart. It just is you have such a sense of community and I feel like love for people and also very self-aware and which to me is a sign of a not good, but great leader. And we just we need more people like you in our churches. And I'm just thankful that you are. You're serving our community and using your gifts for the good of others and for God. And I just want to end by asking you this question that I'm starting to ask other guests. What would you consider to be your favorite practice or rhythm that you find that's healthy, that you find helpful to you, maybe in your daily life? And it could be anything. Spiritual, mental, physical. All right. Um, my favorite practice. I have referred to these times when I was so busy, um, busy with work and relationship and um, so busy trying to bring balance to my life. Um, 
that I, I didn't take time to be quiet. And it may be really ironic or weird for a person who's single to say solitude. Um, but I found that when I was discontent, I was seeking to be surrounded by people and what my pastor Ted would call muchness and manyness, muchness and manyness. And so when I found peace with God, I learned that that the way to keep that is to, um, it's really more about simplicity. And, and for me, it's been about simplicity in terms of um, who am I seeking to be around? Um, instead of looking for the noise and looking for affirmation in other people or um, validation uh, by more achievement, I'm finding if I can go and sit, I have a chair in the living room that I call the prayer chair, and um, I'll go sit with my feet up, and I have a little lap quilt that I made, and um, I'll be in solitude. And I, some people might refer to mindfulness or uh, centering prayer or um, being aware of your breathing, all those different kinds of things. And I think it's all wrapped up in that. And so that times of solitude, whether it's in my prayer chair or if it's while I've got my hands busy doing some creating, then um, that has, has become the life-giving thing for me. Well, I have enjoyed this conversation so much. It has been so enlighten- enlightening and enjoyable. That's, thank you so much for being here. Well, I appreciate your time and uh, your invitation to come and be with you. And I'm uh, grateful for what you're doing and look forward to hearing more of your podcast. Thank you, Monica. Thank you. This podcast represents the views and opinions of Monica Patton and her guests. Its content is presented for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only, and should not be taken as medical, psychological, or legal advice. Please contact a professional for specific questions. This content does not represent any place of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate, comments, suggestions, or correction of errors are welcome.